1: Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising
0: compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au On 882 6 br, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors.
2: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan, welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, My guest in this episode is a former Australian Test cricketer, uh, a cricketer of some repute at states and international level. He's a former state captain uh, and now making his mark in the commentary box and I should declare from the outset my old schoolmate, Simon Kanich. How are you? My pleasure to be here. Good to see you again. It is. It's great to be
1: here in Perth again and uh, great to see you.
2: And fitting that we're in a radio studio, I suppose, having a chat because that's where you're spending a lot of your, your time at the moment, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it is. Uh, having worked for the ABC for a few years covering the Test Cricket coverage and then uh, have moved across with Jared Whateley, who I've learned a lot from and he's obviously a, a prominent board broadcaster. So it's uh, fantastic to be learning from him and mm. uh, watching some great cricket. You enjoy it? I really enjoy the it. Game? Yeah, yeah no, I really enjoy it. I, I think... You know, there was a period where I didn't think I'd probably uh, do something like this. But having had a break from the game and, and spending a couple of years out of cricket, I think I've come back and and really uh, felt reinvigorated and and really enjoy watching how they go about it nowadays. The game's changed a lot since when I played, so uh, it's been enjoyable to watch. Do you still pick up the bat at all? Uh, only in the backyard with the kids. So I'm, I'm <laughs> doing a lot of backyard cricket with the boys, and I help sort of coach. My oldest son's uh, under nines team, which I really enjoy. The kids are, are learning the game for the first time, and it's great to be able to try and pass on little tips to them, even though it's just all about
2: participation mm. at the moment. It's amazing how many former players you meet, uh, you know, five years, ten years, whatever, after they've finished playing, you know, at the higher standard, and they'll say, haven't ever got the bat out of the bag. Oh. Well, that- You hear it a lot, don't you? Yeah,
1: no, it's true because when you've done it for, you know, I nearly did it for 20 years professionally and then you you consider all the junior cricket you play as well, it's probably like a a 30-odd year period and you get to the end and you know when the end's right, Mm. Um, particularly when you're, uh, you know, you've got family and and stuff like that that changes and the whole whole dynamic changes. So when that happened, I realised that uh, it was nice to have a break from the game and uh, leave that behind for a bit.
2: How do you go balancing all of that? You've got a young family, as you mentioned. Um, Obviously, you're away. Uh, probably less now as a commentator, but it's I imagine it's pretty tough when you're playing you know at the highest level, which is obviously your career ambition, but balancing that with family must be pretty hard, huh
1: yeah, look, I think uh, during my career, there were a lot of sacrifices, and that's something that I guess family understand and and my wife understood she knew what she was getting herself in for when we started going out and then when we got married, so That's something that hasn't really been an issue from her point of view or or family's point of view. But I guess once kids came along, I was nearly at the end of my career. So that didn't really impact too much on on their early days. I got to spend a lot of time with them from the time they were born. So unlike a few of my other teammates who missed a lot of their kids growing up, I've pretty much been around Mm -hmm. the whole time for my youngsters. and, And that's something I've really enjoyed had them a little bit later in life, and it's worked out pretty well. But now with work, I'm really mindful of not being away too much, even though the jobs that I do, coaching overseas and, and commentating, take me away, but when I'm home, I'm home, and I, I love that balance with having plenty of time with my young
2: boys. They'll be putting the hand up to tag along with you soon.
1: No doubt. I think uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to take my boys to India where I coach in the IPL, and yeah. I really want them to, you know, to see what the rest of the world's like. They're still probably a little bit young at this stage, but eventually uh, we'll get there, and I'm sure they'll want to go to the cricket ground and hit balls and no do, doubt. do exactly what I did.
2: Yeah, I'll ask you about the coaching a little bit later because um, I know that's a big part of what you do at the moment, uh, as well as uh, as commentating. But let's just let's go back to to you growing up. Um, Obviously, I'm, <laughs> I know where you grew up. Uh, you know, you're a, you're a Swan Valley uh, boy, um, born and bred West Australian. Obviously, we've lost you to New South Wales uh, at the moment, but uh, tell us about where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Hearn Hill slash yep. Middle Swan. It's, it's a bit of point of conjecture because of the bordering, but um, look, I grew up out there in the Swan Valley, had a fantastic uh, childhood out in the farm, sort of 12 acres growing up, plenty of space. So there's plenty of space to play cricket, kick the footy around and do all that. And then, you know, going to Trinity College where we obviously went to school together um, from year four through to year 12, that was something that probably, you know, I look back on now and think I'm really lucky to have gone to such a great school, made plenty of great mates who I still catch up with now when I'm back in Perth. And obviously from a cricket point of view, getting an opportunity to to I guess, go to school next door to the WACA where we used to be able to go in and watch at lunchtimes and yeah. have access to great facilities. You know, you couldn't ask for anything more as a as a youngster. And um, I look back on all that now and think uh, I was very lucky to, to have yeah. all those opportunities.
2: I think we were, weren't we? I remember you at school, though. Like, it was always cricket. I mean, you were a pretty good student and you are very good at hockey as well, I remember. And you're you're pretty good at when we were kicking the footy around at lunchtime as well. Obviously, sports came pretty naturally to you, but it was always cricket, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, it was. I think, um, like all kids growing up, you watch it on TV TV and you obviously see all the players that are out there, and and that's probably where I got a lot of my love for the game. I I grew up loving the West Indian cricketers because they were the best in the world, so guys like Saviv Richards and these guys probably inspired me from a young age, and I guess it was just always within me, I think. When I was about four years of age, mum and dad said that I, that's what I wanted to do. I said I wanted to play test cricket. And it's amazing what happens when you follow your dream and, and that's what you're passionate about. So, you know, whether it's cricket, whether it's something else in life that you're passionate about, you know, I'd encourage that to, to anyone that uh, has that passion. And, and I've been very fortunate mm. to do what I loved um,
2: throughout my career. I remember you, you, your mum made the best lunches during the cricket games uh, I think ever I think she still goes down in history in, in the in the PSA division anyway as 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 being like you know most outstanding lunch coordinated well, the phenomenal thing, spreads
1: the thing about Trinity College was that we had a reputation for having this amazing spread from all the mums yeah and there were some fantastic cooks there and it was a tactic to put the opposition off because yeah. they would come out after lunch and they would just struggle stuffed. because they had so much food. When you're that age, you don't have any discipline with food, yeah. so you're just mowing as much as you can. <laughs> and that was one of our tactics. And unfortunately, yeah. it didn't quite work as well as we would have liked. <laughs> but we you were,
2: guys probably ate too much of it as well. Oh, we did. Yeah. We couldn't uh, field after lunch. But, you, but your, your, your family generally, obviously, they supported you in your, in your cricketing endeavors. But, I mean, you, was your dad a cricketer himself?
1: Yeah, this is the, the unique part about it is I never really had anyone from the family or mum or dad's family that um, played cricket, had a cricket background because dad's family migrated from what was Yugoslavia in the late 30s, so they didn't know anything about cricket. It was all probably soccer. Yeah. Um, so his side, there was nothing. And then on mum's side, there was a little bit of sporting but more footy. Yep. Um, so it was just probably my own love of the game. But like anyone, you know, to be able to achieve – playing state cricket and playing for Australia, you need to have all that support from family, particularly when you're young and you're getting driven around to all the different venues around yeah. the state, playing underage cricket. So that was something that, you know, very, very lucky to have that support right throughout my career and, and you know, up until this day.
2: What do you remember of your dad then as being a pretty high-ranking cop at the time? Because a lot of people would know your dad, you know, Big Vince. He yes. was a bit of a fixture around town, wasn't he? You yeah. Know, legendary uh, cop in WA. Um, head of homicide at one point, and, and instrumental in the still-talked-about uh, investigation into the Burnies, for instance, which was a pretty dark chapter in our history. But, I mean, as a as a dad, were you aware of, of the sort of things that he was going out and doing in his day job?
1: Yeah, look, um, I was really aware because I think, you know, when you've got that job, particularly when he was head of Major Crime Squad, there would be phone calls to the home phone. And back in the day, there was no mobiles or anything like that. It was yeah. people ringing on the home phone. And we had a private number purely because of that reason of the job he did. And there would be times where the phone would be ringing at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. and It's be never good news when it rings at that time of the day. Well, particularly when it's someone threatening <laughs> you yeah. and the family. So yeah. that, that's the sort of stuff that you sort of become aware of when, when your dad's in that role. But then also... I guess, you know, I used to go over to police headquarters after school some days for a Mm. lift home and, you know, I'd go up to the office there and and obviously it's a pretty high pressure, stressful job dealing with, you know, murder cases and stuff like that. So, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise when I'd walk up there and the boys would send me into the forensics room while they're all having a quiet beer just to relax after work. So. (laughs) that was the sort of balance i found about that role and it, there was a period in time where you know i used to think maybe that's something i would like to do yeah, as too right. when you yeah. you know you, you look up to your dad so from that point of view um, i did think about it but then i also knew that my passion probably wasn't quite that and it was cricket and and that's what i pursued
2: yeah interesting environment to grow up in though isn't it i it, imagine
1: yeah it is because of obviously the nature of the work and obviously you know some of the people that they're dealing with and, and particularly the Bernie case, you know, i yeah. look back on that and I actually watched, there was a doco on it recently, yeah. I think last year and we sat down and watched it and it was really
2: interesting. Your dad made a little cameo in there, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And,
1: um, you know, it's funny because it, it feels like it was just the other day. Yeah. Um, but I, I do remember things at the time because I think I was sort of, you know, at the back end of, of sort of junior school so to speak and yeah yeah that was that sort of brought back some memories of how it mm. all unfolded and, and you think back and you go you know feel for the, the poor families that lost their daughters throughout yeah. that whole process and you know dad and the rest of his team had to, to deal with all that grief and, yeah. and telling the family so it's, it's not a great job but um you know you've you got to respect yeah. the people out there doing those tough jobs that that help the community
2: and in hindsight you probably made the right call yeah not following in his footsteps.
1: Yeah, I think so. They were, they were big footsteps to, to, uh, to try and fill, so, yeah, I don't yeah. think I will had a chance.
2: Yeah. We need to take a break. Simon Caddich is our special guest in this
0: episode of Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 BR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories where
2: Simon Cadditch is my special guest. Uh, just transitioning now out of, out of your school days, Simon, obviously, you know, it's a big decision. You know, a lot of your mates are thinking about going to uni or whatever. Um, you decide, no, cricket's my passion and, and hopefully my profession. Um, was that a big call to make? Yeah, it
1: was back in the the day, you know, when I first started in the WA squad as an 18-year-old, I think it was in 1993, you know, there was no contracts. So you could train 10 or 11 months of the year with the WA squad and not get paid a cent because it was all basically match fees. Mm. And at that point in time, I was just in the squad. So I didn't make my debut until I was 20. So from 18 to 20, I was at uni doing a commerce degree. And there was a period, I think, in the second year where I... I'd had enough of it because I'd obviously studied all throughout school and then was into my second year and and I really loved obviously playing cricket and and was in the WA squad and that's what I wanted to do. But I never forget mum and dad saying, no, no, you've got to finish this off because you've got to have something behind you. And and I look back now and think it was a really good decision because even though I never used the degree as such because I started playing for WA pretty much at the end of of Mm. my time finishing it, what it did was when I got my opportunity for WA, it had taken a lot of pressure off because I knew I had something behind me and I yep. could just go out there and enjoy my cricket. Whereas I saw some of my other teammates not have that behind them, and then the pressure of playing at state level because it was so it was cutthroat back then. You know, yeah. not many guys getting opportunities because the Australian team was so strong. So it was a bit of a risk, but it was what I, w- I was passionate about, and, and I guess as I said before, you know. When you are passionate about something, you put everything towards it to make it work. And I certainly tried to do that. But unfortunately, in sport, there's no guarantee. So, mm. you know, I look back now and think it was a big risk, but I'm glad I took it.
2: Yeah. The, the dressing room uh, at the Wacker at the time, some fairly big characters in there. Um, obviously, you know, Tom Moody would have been around there. Damien Martin, um, a pretty young still, Gilly. Was there? It would have been a good time to be part of that setup. I imagine
1: it was. I look back on my time starting as a young player in WA, and I think I was blessed to have the mentors that I did, uh, particularly Tom Moody. I mean, I felt really comfortable in the WA rooms right from the word go because there was probably four or five of my teammates from Midland, Guilford, who I'd been playing with since I was sixteen. Yep. they were all senior players that were already in that squad. So guys like Tom Moody, mm. Joe Angel, Brendan Julian. Tim Zura was still playing for, for he wasn't playing for WA, but he was still playing for Midland Guildford. So there are a number of these guys that had a big influence on my career, taught me how to play first-class cricket, and I had the beauty of being able to play with them at club level. So that certainly helped my cause, whereas a a few of my mates that were my age coming into the WA team talked about how intimidating it could be at times, because WA cricket then was very, very successful, and not to say it isn't now, but... Back in that period, it was very successful, and, and it was daunting in a way for young guys to come into that environment. But mm. I was welcomed, and really enjoyed being a yep. part of it. And you know, those guys had a big impact on my career.
2: Yeah. In wow. terms of the uh, the culture there, um, what was that like? I mean, it, is it is it true that you have some pretty <laughs> pretty full on sort of initiations and that sort of stuff? In that perhaps stuff that you wouldn't be able to <laughs> uh, keep up these days.
1: Yeah, look, in terms of the the initiations as such... I'm,
2: I'm being very diplomatic and skirting around it here, but you know what I'm talking about, yeah?
1: Yeah, look, in terms of the initiations, I don't think, you know, for me the culture was all about, um, you know, the, the senior players would lead the charge for the bar at night. But yeah. what, what that did was it created an environment where we were all really comfortable in hanging around each other and yep. socialising, yep. but also the fact was, you know, that's where we learn a lot about our cricket. So yep. we were close as a team. We did it all together. But then, obviously, when it came time to to cricket, it was mm. business, and and the expectation was you trained hard, and yeah. uh, regardless of how many years you'd had the night before, that was that didn't matter. You, you had to go out there and, and do the job. So yeah. it was a great environment, and I look back now, and it, it has changed a lot now. Yeah, and there's good things about how the guys go about it, but I think back in that era, you know, there was nothing wrong with with what, how we went about it. It was just a different time.
2: Yeah. Um, you obviously had a lot to do with uh, with with some of the success here in WA. Um, our last Shield title—it's uh, been a while, hasn't it, since we've won another one? But back in the '98 '99 series, what are your memories of that? Particularly the final against Queensland.
1: Yeah, look, uh, you go up to Queensland, and normally, you know, teams don't have um, a great record up there in terms of being able to win Shield finals because it's all in the home teams' favour. Uh, they only have to draw the game. But uh, we'd just snuck into the final courtesy of a draw in Melbourne, so that was something that gave us a lot of confidence, uh, having played a, a strong Victorian team the game before. But then we got to, to Queensland and, and, you know, they've got a strong team, but everything seemed to go right. We bowled first, bowled them out. It was overcast on day one. Then we batted big and, and got a big lead. And, and they hadn't been under any of that pressure all year. They'd sort of been known to dominate games and get in front early. Yep. That they were put on the back foot, and then we managed to uh, get the job done in about four days. And yeah. i never forget, it was one of the best parties we've ever had afterwards. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's lasted 20 years, that hangover. Yeah, we hopefully not to too
2: much longer. Um, hopefully, but it, it has been, particularly, as you say, after such a, an extraordinary run of success uh, in the, the decade also leading up to that. Um, you scored a ton in that game as well, though, didn't you?
1: Yeah, it was uh, you know amazing to be able to do that in a shield final. Uh, mm. It had been a really good season personally, and then to get to the final and finish the job off and help us win—that's you know that's what it's all about. Particularly when you're in the top order, your your job is to set the platform with big scores, and to do it in a final, you know, was was really special, mm. particularly in a winning one. Um, and then that sort of led to me being picked for Australia not long mm. after. Um, for my first tour to Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe.
2: So Mm. it's
1: amazing what happens when you do well in the Shield final and, and, you know, things like that happened
2: afterwards. And and then not long after that, you, you know, you committed the ultimate act of of treachery uh, and, you know, and and defection. Uh, A great traitor, Simon. (laughs) I'm winding you up.
1: Uh, (laughs) Leaving us, but
2: you said I'm sure you were called much worse. Yeah. and and at the time, there was a lot said about uh, you know things that were wrong uh, at the WACA and the whole setup there uh, in at the professional level of, of WA cricket, uh, and you being part of that, that being a factor in your decision to to head over the Nullarbor to New South Wales. What's what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, look, it's a good question because I never thought I'd play for another state. You know, talking about those wins and having played for six years for WA. Having having played underage cricket, I never thought I'd play for another state. So yeah. when it all happened, it was a tough decision to make because all my mates and family were here. But then part of me also thought, you know, at the end of my career, do I want to look back and have any regrets? So that was a big part of it. Mm. Um, like thinking, well, you know, I'm 26, 27 years of age now. If I don't do it, I'll never do it. And if I don't do it, maybe I'll look back and regret not doing it. So. You know, I made the decision. My wife's from Sydney, so I don't often tell her she's part of the reason because she'll get a big head. But <laughs> um, that played a part as well. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, probably the one of the biggest parts of it was what was unfolding at the Wacker. you know. Yeah. I had six great years where Wayne Clark was coach and he was a really relaxed character. And, and I really thrived in that environment because that's what I knew. It had been that way from when I was 18 to sort of when I left. And and then it changed in the space of a year. All my mates that had, had I'd learnt from, Tom Moody and uh and Brendan Julian and these guys, you know, they were all starting to finish up. Yeah. it was a totally different dressing room. We had a new coach, Mike Valletta, come in and he was complete opposite to, to Wayne Clark. And so, you know, having done a little bit of captaincy around that period, mm. it was a totally different dynamic. Mm. And, and I struggled to deal with that. I was still probably really Young and immature in a way as a captain, so you know no doubt that that played a part, and I probably could have been uh, could have learnt a lot from that. well, I certainly did learn a lot from that period um so yeah, when I look back on it, things happen in life for a reason and whilst yeah. you know I look back and think I would have been great to have played for w a my whole career. That didn't happen. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I copped it for the first couple of years. Don't oh, worry about that. I,
2: and you probably still cop it every now and then when you come back here, like you are now.
1: Well, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, because I came back and finished at the scorchers. Um,
2: yeah, my, we sort of forgave you.
1: I've been. I think. I think that yeah. sort of helped smooth things over a bit because <laughs> when it happened, and I got asked by Mickey Arthur, "Do you want to come back and spend Christmas with your family and play for us?". I, hadn't, I actually was going to have the six weeks off and not play yeah, at all. Yeah. And then I thought about it and I asked my wife, I said, oh, I don't know how this is going to go down at the Wacker." coming back after what I did. And, and she said, no, no, why don't you? And, and I'm glad, really glad I did it because I look back now and think, you know, the way the Scorchers have evolved, yeah. That the public here love them, and to have played a role in that as a senior player, mm. um, you know, I'm really glad that I was able to finish my career here and, and my final game yeah. was my home ground at the Wacker.
2: Yeah. And, and just on, on the shield um, level because, you know, we'll, we'll get on to um, your international cricket after the break, but uh, obviously going to New South Wales worked out pretty well for, for you in terms of domestic cricket. I mean, you know, probably haven't got time to go through all of your your stats and numbers here, but, you know, there was obviously the season where you scored, you know, 1,500-plus uh, in a season, um, won a uh, a competition with New South Wales. What was it, the Pura Cup at the time, I think, you know, 300 uh, at the SCG, it was a good move, yeah?
1: Yeah, and I think you know, part of the reason was I knew I had to get better as a player and mm. it was a challenge to go to Sydney because you grow up here on a fast, bouncy wicket and you get pigeonholed a bit, whereas in Sydney, the wicket was slow and turns. and Plus, I also felt that you know to be able to bowl... Mm. You don't bowl much at the Wacker as mm. a part-time spinner. And, and I don't blame the captains for that because I did bowl a heap of rubbish. But <laughs> to go to Sydney, you know, that was something that helped develop that yeah. side of my game. And that, that actually helped me get in the test team. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it did play a big part in my development. And,
0: and yeah.
1: you know, playing with the likes of, you know, the War Brothers and Michael Slater and Stewie McGill. And these guys certainly taught me a lot about, I guess, the self-belief yep. that those guys had in their own ability to play test mm. cricket. So. Mm. Being around that as well, not saying that I didn't have that here in WA because a lot of the guys here obviously ended up playing for Australia and having great careers as well. But I think just being out of that comfort zone away from home mm-hmm. made me really grow up quickly and, and mm. uh, you know made the most of that opportunity.
2: Uh, we'll get on to your, um, your international career after the break, Simon, because there's stacks to get through. This is Inspiring Stories brought to you by Baron O'Day. Back with more in a moment.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the inspiring story of Simon Kaddish. Simon, let's go back to early 2000s. You were piling on the runs. Uh, pretty much in all forms of the game, uh, you make your test debut. What are your your memories of that i mean obviously that's you know that 's the moment right yeah, look, it was a massive
1: moment. I think uh, you know everyone says it 's a dream come true, and it is, yeah. and what made mine probably even more special was that Obviously I had my family there, but also had a couple of mates from school. I
2: remember, just yeah, a little. they, and they still happen. talk about it.
1: <laughs> and they, they made an amazing effort to come over because I only yeah. found out a couple of days before yeah. the test. So to make the trip from Australia to Leeds in uh, the north of England was a great effort and yeah. something I'll never forget. Yeah. But then what made it even more special was, you know, I had the great Richie Benno present me my baggy green cap. Wow! And he said. There are many more important things in life than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer, it is the ultimate achievement. Every time mm. you wear it, wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And you know, to have someone They're the exact words he said here. It's exactly what he said, and, yep. and I look back now and think, you know, how lucky I was that Steve Waugh brought that tradition into Australian cricket. He yep. deserves a lot of credit for that because it it makes what is a special occasion even more special when you have a a bond with the person that presents you your mm. baggy green cap. And to have Richie, you know, a former Australian captain and legend of the game, mm. you know, that made, you know, it was just a dream come true. So I look back and think how lucky was
2: I. Yeah. Where's your baggy green now?
1: It's in a safe uh, in my garage, locked away, because it's sort of – it's one of those things where, because I wore it for 56 tests, it's got some good wear and tear to it and <laughs> a lot of sweat and, and it's, it's faded. And I know if it was ever gone, I can't replace that. So yeah. it's, it's done and dusted. So it's, it's tucked away
2: and uh, – yeah that's uh, where it is. An extraordinary time to be part of the Australian setup though. I mean you talk about generations of players uh, you know in recent memory that was the ultimate for Australia wasn't it? I mean some of the the, the company that you kept there you, you mentioned War but also you know Gilly McGrath Marnie you know there's some pretty big names.
1: Well and, and the list goes on Langer yeah. Hayden Ponting Yeah. um Martin
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean I no wonder it was tough to get into it. Well, well,
1: Gillespie, you know, Brett Lee, Michael Cusk, there was just so many very, very good players. There were so many good players at state level that didn't even get to play a test. So, Mm. you know, when I look back now and I think, yeah, it would have been nice to play a few more, but ultimately there were guys there that were very, very good cricketers, didn't even get to play one. So I consider myself very fortunate and to have played in that era is very special because, you know, a lot of them are legends of Australian cricket and not only Australian cricket, but world cricket.
2: Yeah. Standout moments for you, I know we could talk we could talk for the whole hour just about your you know your test days, but what were the standout moments for you uh, in the test side?
1: Yeah, look, I think for me, winning in India in two thousand and four was probably the most special moment because we hadn't won there for I think thirty eight years. Uh, we went there, Ricky Poning got injured uh, just before the the tour. Uh, he got broke his thumb in England during some one day games, and I got an opportunity to bat at three, which helped me enormously batting at the top of the order. But also, Adam Gilchrist took over as captain, and he did an amazing job. Um, we had a, a phenomenal attack, you know, Shane Warne and, and McGrath and Gillespie and Michael Kasprowicz did a great job because the Indians in their home conditions are just they're almost impossible to get out because they yeah. love batting there, and those guys, you know, they set the series up. And so for us to be able to win there in that series in 2004, it hasn't been done since, is really special. So that's, you know, something I'm really proud of. I guess playing a part in the 05 Ashes, even though it wasn't a great series personally, what a phenomenal series it was for Test Cricket. And and I look back on that series and think, you know, it was was fantastic to be a part of, even though, unfortunately, we we went down 2-1. So plenty of great memories there. and, And I guess for me, yeah, as I said before, playing in that team, there's so many great players. that yeah. uh, To have considered them teammates and mates now, um, I'm very lucky.
2: Was that the series where McGrath stood on the ball? It yeah. was. Yeah. yeah,
1: the warm-ups were set out early at, at Edgebaston, and unfortunately Brad Haddon threw an errant uh, rugby league pass, and it lobbed over McGrath. He sort of tried to get it over his head and then st- swivelled around, shot on the ball, and that was it. He was out.
2: Moral of that story is rugby league's a silly game. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're an AFL man. We'll get onto that in a bit later as well. But uh, 10 tonnes uh, with the baggy green on, uh, you know, metaphorically there. Um, obviously, helmets are more to go these days. But uh, of those 10 tonnes, is there one that uh, that you would consider your best?
1: Yeah, look, I think everyone, when you get your first one, because it, it's confirmation that you're good enough to play at that level, that's always very special. Yep. And I guess mine was... In Steve War's last test at the SCG against India, yeah, and I guess given the game situation, it meant a lot because India made seven hundred and eleven, we and we're in the field for three and a bit days. And I thought I'm never going to get a bat here in the first place, but <laughs> we managed to hang in there for a draw. And, and thankfully, Steve War went out, yeah, um, you know, in a drawn series rather than going out in yeah. a losing series.
2: Now, a lot of people, you know, reflecting on your time and the, the, the sort of runs that you were you were scoring at the time, um, think you were pretty pretty hard done by, uh, to finish up after 56 tests. And a lot's been said about you and Michael Clark. I don't want to dwell on it too much because I know it's been spoken about a lot. Um, But here I am, not talking about it, but talking about it. Michael Clark, do you still hold him responsible for for the the end of your test career?
1: Yeah, look, uh, I guess it's one of those things. You know, in 2008, when I got back into the test team, I wasn't supposed to. I'd received a call in early 2007. I was in England. They said that we're not going to pick you again. I just had a good season for New South Wales. Anyway, I was in England playing and I thought, well, wherever I'm going to play my cricket, I'm going to just have fun and try and help the team win games of cricket. And because I was captaining at the time, uh, there was a responsibility to obviously um, lead from the front. So I did that in England, had a good summer, came home. We had a really young group for New South Wales. Young Phil Hughes was starting, Kawaja, yep. Steve Smith, all these young kids. So it was my sort of role to be able to mentor them and, and teach them you know, about first-class cricket because they're all 18, 19 years of age. Had that summer for New South Wales, uh, getting the 1,500-odd runs. We won the Pura Cup. And then the next year in 2008, I was picked for the test team again. And that wasn't supposed to happen, so... I treat that period as though, you know, it was a bit of a bonus and I'm glad that, it you know, I got that opportunity. Unfortunately, when it all finished, um, you know, it was on the back of what happened in the dressing room that, that, had happened in sort of early 2009. Um, you know, I don't deny what happened. We had a disagreement. It was heated and, and, you know, the rest is history. It was about a bit about the song, but it was also a bit about what Michael said to me in the rooms in front of my teammates. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something that he's since spoken about in his book. So, you know, these things happen. Just we, just for
2: the benefit of those who, who haven't read his book, uh, can you tell us what was said?
1: I can't because I, I think there's probably a female audience and there's a few <laughs> words that I, I can't – Bit uh, of fruity language in there. Yeah, but, but it was personal stuff yep. um, which I didn't enjoy hearing. And as a result, we had the altercation. You know, we tried to – it was something that we tried to um, – to sort out because mm. we were still in the same team together, mm. moving forward, and he assured you know me and the, and the management that there wouldn't be any issues, um, which I think that was was the case. Um, but then, from my point of view, you know, when I got sacked in, I think it was early 2011. You know, for the three previous years, I think I'd probably made the most test runs, uh, well, by an Australian, uh, and, and I was from all reports only. Two guys in the world had made more Test runs in that three-year period. Yeah. one of them was Alistair Cook, and one was Sachin Tendulkar. So, I felt that I'd earned my spot in the team. And then he became captain, and, and next thing you know, I wasn't there. So, I know obviously that you know Cricket Australia make those decisions, but having been a captain and being a part of you know all that process, you normally do mm. get to have a say in, yep. in how you want to shape a team moving forward. So, you know that that was all part of the process, and, and once I realised that my career was over, I got on with life and, and yeah. basically kept playing for a few years of county cricket, played a, a couple of years for the Scorchers, and I look back now and go, you know, everything happens in life for a reason. Mm. Maybe that was how it was meant to be, and I had a couple of great years with my sons growing up.
2: Mm. Uh, obviously, you're two very different characters, and you know, a lot has been said um, you know, from, from you and from him. Um, you both have been involved in cricket commentary lately. Um, you both live in Sydney. I'm guessing your paths cross. You might sort of happen to be walking past each other in a corridor at a cricket ground around the country, wherever it may be. If you see each other coming towards each other, do you do you say g'day?
1: Yeah, we acknowledge each other. But yeah. That's
2: probably the extent of it. And that's it. Yeah. And just keep walking yeah. and then mutter something under your breath. <laughs> <laughs> no, he probably... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's uh, move on from that then. Um, you finish up your cricket at, at, at international level. But obviously, then, you know, you, you still play on. I mean, you mentioned coming back for the scorches. Uh, was it? Was it ever a temptation just to say, oh, I'm done. That's it. Family time now. I'm out.
1: Yeah, part of me thought that. Um, but then, part of me also knew that uh, it was almost in a way sort of giving in to what had happened, yeah, and so many people around me you know said don 't do that it 's not you know mm. fight it and keep going and, and i 'm glad I did because those last couple of years were a chance to probably wean myself off the game that i 'd loved so much for so long it 's very hard to go cold turkey after you 've done something for so long, yeah and so it was nice to be able to do that at the lower levels and then help out as a senior player. So I played some, you know, cricket for Lancashire in in England and and was the senior sort of player there and then at the Scorchers as well. So, you know, with a young group, it's always nice to be able to pass that on. I still played club cricket. Mm. I played for Midland when I came back here Mm. um, during the the Big Bash and then even in Sydney leading into the Big Bash, I'd play for my club there, Randwick-Petersham. So to be able to do that and, you know, give back to the lower levels of the game was something that I really enjoyed. I Always loved playing club cricket because it's where we all start. Yeah, and to be able to do that for a couple of years before I uh, finally hung up the boots was
2: was nice. And, and to come back and play for the Scorchers, the prodigal son returning. Yeah, it wasn't. Was, me- it was good for your reputation here.
1: <laughs> well, it it helped smooth things over a bit, that's for sure. Um, yeah, look, having started here, you know, I've got so many great memories of playing yeah. at the Wacker, and then to finish my career here, my last game was at the Wacker in BBL three. We lifted the trophy for the first time after a couple of failed attempts in the first two years. So that was really special to think, you know, this is where I started, this is where I'm finishing, and we've done what we set out to do as a Mm. unit. And then to see this group continue that on, that probably makes me even prouder because even now I'm still involved with the Scorchers informally, um, and I love the fact that, you know, this is something we've created from scratch yep. uh, seven years ago, and to see these young guys enjoying the success of, yeah. of how they go about it and the hard work, you know, I'm really thrilled for that, and, and I'm sure that we'll continue to do
2: that at the Scorchers. We need to take a break. Stack's more to get through. I want to ask you about uh, MasterChef. Uh, I want to ask you about your time on the footy field. Uh, your your mysterious medical condition and whatever else we can jam into the next uh, segment. This is Inspiring
0: Stories uh, with Simon Cadditch here on 882 6PR, back with more in a moment. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
2: And of all the inspiring chapters in the inspiring story of Simon Cadditch, let's talk about the ultimate, your stint on Celebrity MasterChef. <laughs> <laughs> How uh, on earth did that come about?
1: Well, it's by chance. I was coming <laughs> home from the 2009 Ashes and, and there was a request that came in. And I obviously have a variety of people from different bra- backgrounds and obviously wanted a cricketer. Yeah. And uh, I don't think Matty Hayden was interested, <laughs> even though he'd published cookbooks, but... I thought about it, and i thought oh i don 't really want to do this on t v but I love cooking, so I thought, yeah. why not,
2: and you loved eating
1: I loved eating, so I thought why not i 'll take it take it on so I went in and did it, and uh, I got to the last six, but uh, I had a bit of a shocker in the, in the semi final. <laughs> I tried to make a panna cotta in the space of about ninety minutes, and you need probably a couple of hours for it to set and it didn't set under the hot uh, lights. But it the one there. thing, the, the reason I think I got kicked out was that what a lot of people don't realise that it was my cooking station was behind Miss Universe Australia, Rachel Finch, and I had to cook there for 90 minutes. So you reckon I could concentrate with <laughs> Rachel Finch in front of me?
2: <laughs> Having said that, you could quite easily blame it on your mysterious medical condition, which is that you have absolutely zero sense of smell.
1: Correct. And I think it's called nomia or something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, from memory as a kid, I, I can't so remember. So
2: you have never been able to smell a single thing in your life?
1: No. The only thing that I feel that I can smell is like deep heat or tiger balm. It's a strong <laughs> yeah. sort of menthol. Potent stuff. Potent
2: smell. But yeah.
1: otherwise, when it comes to flowers, perfume, food, bad smells, which is probably something I'm very lucky being around um, – You know, dressing rooms for so long, I've been fortunate that I can't smell because, uh, yeah, some of my teammates uh, weren't the most pleasant-smelling guys.
2: (laughs) I won't ask you for names, but yeah, a blessing. It's quite a bizarre thing. It's one of those things, of course, you take for granted. That you can smell but in a in a cooking scenario it's a pretty handy thing to have too
1: well everyone says doesn't it affect your taste but I, I think my taste is is normal yeah uh, in terms of being able to say whether something's spicy or salty or, or whatever so look uh, that's all I've ever known so I, I don't yeah. think I'll probably ever try and get it fixed or I don't even know if you can get it fixed I,
2: I've no idea if anyone knows let Simon know <laughs> you, you mate you might not want to smell what's out there, or oh, particularly all with, of a sudden, particularly
1: with two young boys at home. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Indeed, hey, coaching-wise, um, obviously you've been doing some coaching in India. Uh, it's pretty short stint coaching, uh, and you throw yourself into that chaotic environment of of IPL in India. Um, what's that like?
1: Yeah, look, it's been a big challenge because just because I've had a long playing career doesn't automatically mean that you know you can go into coaching and, and be successful. So. I guess, and particularly in an environment like India, where you know there is big name players, guys on huge amounts of money and, and egos, but we've got a fantastic franchise, a very grounded franchise, and and I think going into that settled environment's helped me from a coaching point of view. They've also got me to do a, a head coach role for them at, in the CPL, the Caribbean Premier League, where I've been coach, uh, head coach of um, Jimbago Night Riders for the last couple of years. So. Having that variety early in my coaching career has been great to see how other countries and cultures go about um, you know, preparing. It's, it is different to Australia. How we would prepare for the Big Bash here with the Scorchers is totally different how you prepare for an IPL in India because of the timing of the tournament, because of the amount of cricket that the international players play leading into the tournament. So we have to, I guess, taper that off in terms of how they go about it. But what I have really enjoyed is having time with the young Indian players and some of the younger overseas players and being able to t- talk to them not only just about technique but also about the mindset mm. from a batting point of view. And that's something that I've really enjoyed, seeing them try and progress their games and, and having a small part to play in their development.
2: So will we ever see you part of the Australian coaching centre?
1: Oh, look, you never say never if, if I'm asked to. Um, you know, I'm good mates with Justin Langer and, and he's always uh, asking some of his past teammates to come in and help out. He's always said it's a it's an open environment for guys to come in and have their say. And I guess in a way, you know, now there's still one or two of the guys that I'm in touch with and, and in a way you probably mentor them, you know, with things that you see, particularly now that I'm commentating on the radio. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, I played a lot of um, great cricket with Usman Khawaja and feel that, you know, even now... Whenever I see him, we always talk about how he's going and I've, mm. I've got a keen interest in his career and want to see him do well. So there's times where, you know, there's something I might pass on to him. Whether he wants to take it on board or not, that's totally up to him because he's an experienced player now, knows his game. But it's nice to be able to have those conversations with
2: guys that you want to see do well. We might have to wrap up with some some rapid-fire questions here. But let, can I ask you quickly about the bans handed down after Sandpaper Gate? Uh, fair or too long? Fair. Yeah?
1: Uh, not fair compared to ICC bands, but fair from what Australian cricket and Cricket Australia wanted to set a precedent. I think, you know, it sets a, a really strong message that we're not going to condone blatant cheating and taking sandpaper out there. And so from that point of view, I've got no problem with that.
2: And once the bands are served, welcomed back into the Aussie team with open arms?
1: Yeah, look, I think all the guys, everyone makes mistakes in life, so I think they deserve that chance to come back, provided that they've done everything right at the lower levels, which I believe they are all doing. They're all spending a lot of time at club cricket and, and state cricket, so, yeah, I think they all deserve a second chance. Best player
2: you played against? or best bowler you've faced? Uh, either Shane Warne or Yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Too tough to call between the two of them? Well,
1: I probably have to say, i say Warney.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Favourite ground to play on? Probably Lords. Best innings you played? Uh, a- s- at any level?
1: Probably, I got 86 in the second innings in Colombo against Sri Lanka when we were in of Strife. And, and that was probably my best ever test innings against Murali in, in his home conditions on day four of a test, I think it was.
2: A- and favourite player now to watch? Well, that's a tough one.
1: <laughs> I love seeing Chris Lynn smoke him when he plays T20.
2: Yeah, okay. And will we ever see you call WA home again?
1: You never say never. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, I love the place, so it
2: is it is my home. You know, it's where I grew up, so yeah. hopefully. You never know. You'll have to uh, convince your, your New South Welsh woman wife <laughs> 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 that WA is the place to be. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating hearing some of your stories. and appreciate it. And good luck with everything in the future, your coaching, uh, your commentary, family, whatever the future holds. Thank you so much. And I have to pay a big tribute
1: to your mum for teaching me English so that I can actually (laughs) talk
2: properly. (laughs) She'll be chuffed. She'll be sitting there with her clipboard going, room for improvement, Simon. (laughs) I'm sure there is plenty. She's a tough taskmaster. (laughs) Thank you, Simon. Uh, That is the inspiring story of Simon Couch here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story.